Today's dead idea? Well, this is part four of our continuing series on the balance of power, the pre-World War I idea that alliances between the great powers would prevent a great war, which nevertheless led to the worst war Europe had ever seen. And that took many by surprise, but not everybody. In fact, Otto von Bismarck famously prophesied that a great war would eventually spark from, quote, some damn foolish thing in the Balkans, unquote. So today, we're talking about the Balkan situation, which was pretty much ground zero when the shit hit the fan. That's what we're talking about today on Dead Ideas. Hey, thanks for listening, everybody. The music we just heard was composed by Rachel Westhoff, my lovely wife, whose collections of baby doll heads, cat figurines, and lady head vases are each demanding their own independent autonomous shelf in our <laughs> new house. <laughs> I fear what may spark from some damn foolish thing in the curio cabinet. <laughs> I'm B.T. Newberg. You can call me Brandon. With me today is a very special guest co-host, Adam McKithern. Hey, Brandon. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for being on the show. Adam has been gracing us with his cartographical skills. He uh, first volunteered an awesome custom map of medieval Ireland for our Geish series, which was just amazing. And he also did a map of 19th century Russia for our serfdom series that we just finished up. And as for this series, we have lots of maps on our website at www.deadideas.net, but I did not ask Adam to do a custom map for this time because, well, he was a little bit busy with a little thing called getting married. So <laughs> congratulations, Adam. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs> and thanks for being on the show. Um, yeah, Adam, thanks for making me an official member of the Dead Ideas team. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You are on the staff. Your your picture is on the website. There's no getting out of it now. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I showed my wife, and uh, she was duly unimpressed, I'm, I'm going to say. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes, that is, the, uh, that is the poor fortune of the podcaster. <laughs> How misunderstood we are. Adam is a military man by profession. So, Adam, do you want to tell us a little bit about what it is you do for the military? Well, what I did, I'm uh, out now. Okay. I spent, yeah, I spent four years in the United States Army as a cavalry scout. So I did reconnaissance mainly. Oh, really? Um, okay. Yeah, I was in Korea. I deployed to Afghanistan with the 101st Airborne later on. Then I got out, used my GI Bill, and uh. I'm actually graduating college this month, so I was a late bloomer on that, but it's free. Uncle Sam paid for it, so no complaints. Very nice, very nice. Um, you also told me that you are a GIS analyst, which um, something to do with maps. <laughs> yeah, it's a fancy term for I make maps on computers. So okay. I'm a uh, modern-day cartographer. Actually, what I do now, I map agricultural irrigation for a farm in the Mississippi River Delta. Okay. So, that's Very cool. cool. Are you still hoping for a, a new continent to be discovered that can be named after you? Oh, I got my <laughs> fingers crossed on that one, but I'm not holding my breath. <laughs> Catharnia. <laughs> it would be mis mispronounced every time. Yeah. So it's <laughs> All right. So anyway, ho hopefully some of that perspective between the maps and the army and everything else, uh, that should come in pretty handy today, I would think. 
Um, and also, finally, listeners, I drew Adam's portrait as a U.S. Civil War cavalryman, which, now knowing what you did for the Army, that makes sense, I guess. <laughs> and you can see that on our supporters page at www.deadideas.net. And you, too, can get your portrait drawn in the time period and culture of your choosing by supporting the show on Patreon. Uh, okay, so let's get going. So we've been talking about the pre-World War I balance of power system, which is basically the idea that powerful nations should be grouped into alliances in such a way as to balance each other out in terms of power, so that any major war between them would only result in pointless stalemate, so that nobody would be dumb enough to start such a stalemate war, and hence peace would be preserved. That's the idea. Obviously, it didn't work out so great in practice since World War I happened. Um, but how did that happen? How did World War I get started? Well, it all happened, as Bismarck predicted, due to some damn foolish thing in the Balkans. So today we're going to go deep into what this thing was that was called at the time the Balkan situation, which is kind of the understatement of that century. I mean, the Balkan clusterfuck is a more accurate <laughs> way to put it. Yeah. Um, so today, let's see what in the hell it was that went so wrong. And here I am going to go on a little bit of a rant, which is unusual for me, uh, because, you know, when you watch pretty much any... TV documentary about World War One or what you know, YouTube, wherever. Nobody, I mean, nobody seems to ever really make sense of the Balkans. It's always like the Balkans were just going crazy, and now let's talk about World War One. And it's a hard time to make sense of. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but what was so crazy about it that could start this big war? I mean, it's just glossed over with such vagueness. So screw documentaries. We are going to finally do it. <laughs> Get to the root of the matter. Yes, we're going to yeah. we're going to finally give it to you. We're going to be the authoritative source here. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and this episode might run a little long, listeners, because, well, we want to do this right. Our destination today is to make sense of the Balkan situation. And damn it, we're going to do, we're going to get there or we're going to die trying. We're climbing, <laughs> we're climbing. We're climbing it to like a BW. Nobody, nobody told me. Oh, <laughs> nobody told me this was a suicide mission. It's, it's too late. It's too late. You know what? Honor and glory. Let's go. Yes, we've passed the point of no return. Yes. Yeah. It's Balkans okay. or bust, baby. <laughs> okay. Ready? All right. Ready. So this is a, this is going to be fun, I think, because this is a time in history where you get organizations like the Black Hand. <laughs> which um to me that sounds like a dungeon of dragons thieves guild or something <laughs> but that was actually the the conspiracy or cabal that ultimately engineered the assassination of franz ferdinand which started world war one it was called the black hand um, and you also get things like a similar resistance group that was in greece called the friendly society <laughs> <laughs> I, it was, I, I, the greek is something like Hiliki Etiria, this is pretty much literally friendly society, um, which I think is almost an almost even better name. <laughs> I think. Yes. Yeah. Pseudo terrorist groups have so much cooler names in yes. the early 20th century. The friendly they? society. I, mean, <laughs> I really want to play a thief that's in a guild called the friendly society. That would be, <laughs> that would be awesome. Pulling the constantly, strings. constantly underestimated. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> we also have the Hydriots. 
which were people literally from the Isle of Hydra, which is off the Greek coast of Greece. <laughs> so, <laughs> fun times. All right. So first we're going to give a little bit of background context, and then we are going to read an article from 1912, which is just two years before the assassination in Syria that would spark the Great War. And this article is going to describe the Balkan situation as it was perceived, at least by this one author, on the eve of World War I. And the, the author's actual goal is to bring the reader up to speed on the complexities that had been going on for the last 40 years or so in the Balkans. So it's perfect for us because that's what we want to do too. Um, and I will be annotating with comments along the way in the article as well to kind of bring out more texture and complexity wherever I can. And Adam, feel free to do the same, interrupting at any point to give your spin, make a joke, um, give some background context that you know, whatever. Okay? All right. All right, let's do it. So first, the context. So um, let's start with why do we care about the podunk Balkans? <laughs> <laughs> when we're talking about the balance of power, who cares what goes on in this little backwards little place? Um, so this is summed up pretty nicely by a different article from the time, a little excerpt here from something from the Outlook in 1913, an editorial, where the author writes, the Balkan victories have added a seventh military group to the number in Europe, and thus have upset the European balance of power. If the Balkan Federation, which by the way was a number of small Balkan states that were working together during the First Balkan War, if the Balkan Federation becomes established as a European power, it will probably be allied with Russia, England, and France as against the Triple Alliance of Germany, Italy, and Austria-Hungary. So in other words, what he's saying is that the balance of power scales have been disturbed, or are wobbling at least, like they're in mm. danger of being upset. Um, and if that happens, everyone's going to have to scramble to redraw their alliances, which means political chaos. And this author suggests that the Balkan states will likely join what was called the Triple Entente of Russia, England, and France. And even though the Balkan states are individually tiny, and even together they're still relatively small in the big picture, it would still give a significant advantage. It'd be kind of like getting a plus one to your to hit roll in Dungeons and Dragons or something, you know? You've <laughs> you got your plus one sword, and you yeah. know, it's a significant advantage. Um, and that would mean if they got that advantage, that the that their rival, the Triple Alliance, Germany, Italy, mm -hmm. and Austria, Hungary, would then feel threatened, and they would feel obligated to try to balance out that new advantage or even one up it. And that whole thing just makes for a whole, just a mess, just a powder keg situation. Yeah, they would join the, they thought they were joining the Triple Entente because obviously they had beef with Austria, right? Is that the reasoning behind that thinking? They, they did. And some of the Balkan states at the time were buddy-buddy with Russia, who was part of the Triple Entente. Yeah. So, yes, that is, that is correct. That is correct. Mm -hmm. um, so in this system... Uh, the balance is so fragile, it requires so much maintenance, that you do have to pay attention even to podunk little places like the Balkans. So that's why we care today. All right, now let's look at the Balkans itself and why it's a place of such flux and instability at this time. Um, 
Now, when we're talking about the Balkans, what we mean is Southeast Europe. In fact, the word Balkans has become a little bit even um, uh, politically incorrect. It's heading that way. Southeast Europe's starting to be preferred because mm. um, the term Balkanization has become kind of gotten kind of a negative connotation. Um, but we're going to just use Balkans today because um, that's what they called it at the time. And, you know, it, it brings out the flavor and character of what was going on because things were Balkanized that way at the time. So uh, we're talking about Southeast Europe, but mostly the places that are in what is now the former Yugoslavia. So Serbia, Bosnia, Herzegovina, um, Macedonia, Albania, Montenegro, Bulgaria, Croatia, Slovenia. And you could also toss in Greece and Romania, neither of which are necessarily considered Balkans mm-hmm. per se, but they're all like in the same situation yeah. at the time. All those places that are hard to identify on the map of Europe. Yes, yes. Our, our yeah, photographical I'll, I'll, I'll expert you know, says yeah. hard to identify. So that, yeah. there's, there's your authoritative comment right there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. coming from a map maker. Yeah, yeah. Those, those <laughs> exactly. exactly. Speaking of maps, and here I do want your perspective, actually, Adam. Um, mm-hmm. If you look at this region on a physical map, what does it look like, Adam? Like the physical cartography of it. Oh, well, you have... Uh, what the Carpathian Mountains yes. to the north, uh, with kind of a half moon shape, really put me on the spot here. <laughs> so, um, like the, the up and then you have the yeah. what now? Like the upground topography of it. How would you characterize that? Uh, mainly mountainous. Exactly. It's super, super rugged, right? Yeah. 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 So all, all, all the way down into Greece. So, so yeah, pretty much the. The whole thing, to, not to overgeneralize it or anything. But. Let's let's totally overgeneralize. <laughs> okay, okay, rugged and mountainous. <laughs> rugged and mountainous, right? Like if this was a Dungeons and Dragons map, that would just be like all these like kind of chevron shapes, just being like you know with dragons or something there. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and dwarves, of course, because oh, well, obviously, this yeah, mountain. obviously dwarves and storm <laughs> Um And in fact, the word Balkan is actually a Turkish term. For a wooded mountain range, and so that, mm. it's, it's that's pretty much the character of this. It's kind of like Afghanistan in that sense. It's very difficult to sort of completely subdue this kind yeah. of a region. And yeah, mountain warfare is awful unless yeah. you are those people that live in the mountains. Ex- in which in case, which it, it gives you a very big advantage. Yeah, in it which case, it's plus, awesome. Yeah, in yeah, fact, it, it gives you a plus ten. Plus ten. Know, yes. Oh, um, defense, certainly. <laughs> <laughs> um, I read that Montenegro, for example, had this strategy that was uh, very difficult to beat, where uh, they would rebel, as they did many times, against the Ottoman Empire. And when the Ottomans would send their troops in, they would just kind of burn everything and retreat deeper in the mountains and just wait for their troops to starve and leave. And then they... Yeah. Then, that would be it. <laughs> such as such as mountain warfare, even to this day. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. so yeah. that kind of gives a little bit of the flavor of topography and how the effects of that topography on the region. And the other thing about this kind of geography is you get lots of little isolated places where it's uh, easy for linguistic variations and cultural variations to develop. So you get lots of little um, cultural identities kind of developing as well. So uh, that plays into the character of the Balkans and the Balkan peoples a lot. So the trouble in the Balkans basically oozes up out of the slow collapse of the Ottoman Empire. 
which the old uh, man of Europe. Right? Yes, the, yeah. they called it the sick man of Europe. The sick yeah. man of Europe. Yes, and it was nicknamed that at the time. I mean, it, it was not always sick. The Empire had been mm-hmm. a vigorous and fearsome, very like you know, terrifyingly awesome power in the Renaissance period, and it managed to take control of the Balkans in during that time around the 14th century. But its heyday was it was long over, yeah. right? So. You gotta, so by the 19th century, you gotta imagine like this kind of huge turbaned sultan basically singing <laughs> Bruce Springsteen's glory days, you know? <laughs> that's, that's basically the Ottoman Empire in the 19th century. <laughs> uh, by this time, it really appeared kind of basically backwards, medieval, rife with internal divisions and problems, and it got this way by basically failing to modernize. Uh, and there's a couple of reasons for that. So first, it didn't modernize its power structures. Uh, it held on to what was essentially a feudal governmental structure. And second, they had the state-sponsored elite soldiers called Janissaries, who used to be awesome warriors, badasses yeah. back in the day when they are really strict about their regimen. But things had gotten kind of loosey-goosey. They got kind of fat and spoiled. And these Janissaries really stood to lose their privileges in society mm-hmm. through modernization. And so they would block nearly every effort at it. Now, and the Janissaries, weren't they originally Christian, yes. taken from the Christian population? Yes. yes. Now, was that still the case after they became more of what I'm guessing is a ceremonial role? It, yes and of, no. As you said, fattened up a little bit? Yes and no. So um, originally they were the children of Christian families who were mm-hmm. basically stolen away and then they would be indoctrinated into Islam and raised as these elite soldiers that would be like super fanatically loyal, kind of. Yeah. And they were. But over time, it became less that you could kind of buy your way into the mm. ranks. And it was yeah. just, it was, it was, a, yeah. Corruption. And, uh, yeah. Corruption. Yeah. Eh, as it always happens. Um, and I and I read about this interesting um, way that they blocked modernization. At least one of the times they did, there was a time when Sultan Selim the Third was attempting to modernize the Ottoman Empire, and they managed to block his efforts by signing up nearly four times their numbers in new Janissary recruits. And the way that that helped them was because they were state sponsored. So their hmm. rival, the Sultan, had to pay for the, all of those <laughs> Janissaries. <laughs> and there, it was like, it basically bankrupted the Sultan yeah. by increasing their number by quadruple. So <laughs> it was pretty clever. Yeah. So in, uh, the third reason why the Ottoman Empire was sick at the time um, was Turkey didn't really take part very much in the international relations of Europe, so they kind of fell behind in the balance of power game. Mm. Um, fourth, they didn't really see colonies, so they missed out on a lot of that world trade that was up and coming. And finally, the rising mercantilism of European powers who did get their hands on all that sweet trade destabilized the Ottoman economy to the point that it led to inflation, famine, political instability, and all of that is basically what made Turkey the sick man of Europe at this time. That's that's why the Sultan's singing Springsteen. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Yeah. So everyone in Europe at the time knew that it was it was just they're just waiting around for it to happen. It was only a matter of time before the Ottoman Empire fell, and they were starting to flock up like vultures around a dying man's corpse, and Mm -hmm. each hoping to get as much of that sweet flesh as they could. (laughs) Just or 
if they couldn't get that, then at least they didn't want their rivals to get it. So the oh, Balkans yeah. were a major piece of that pie of the Ottoman Empire. And to drill down a little deeper into this situation, each of the major powers had their own specific reasons for wanting the Balkans. So now let's just kind of go around the table of this kind of like crazy diplomacy game that's going on and see kind of like what the situation of each of the great powers in Europe was in 1912, which is the year of today's article that we'll be reading and two years before the start of World War I. Okay, so first we go to the Austria, the Austro-Hungarian player, right? So we're <laughs> each of these guys has got like mission cards in front of them or something that they yeah. have to complete, right? So Austria-Hungary wants to expand because it really hasn't won a war in a while, and so it's it's got to flex some nuts basically, and if for the other great powers to keep taking it seriously. Mm -hmm. So it can't go north because Germany unified in 1871, and now it's too strong for them to realistically take them down. And it can't go west because Italy did the same, finishing up also in 1871. Uh, and so if it wants to really show that it can still expand and be a thriving, vigorous power and not a sick man like the Ottoman Empire, it's, it's only got one place to go, and that's south and east, which is right where the Balkans are. So right. that's... So that's their mission card, right? Specifically, their plan is they want to build a railway through the region from, I think it's from Vienna, but the destination is definitely to Salonika in Greece. So you'd have to cut a rail mm. right through the Balkans all the way to Greece. And the reason why they want that is they want the local economy of the Balkans to become dependent on Austria. Right. Yeah. So that's, that's why they want that. But, however... There's tension around this, even just within Austria-Hungary itself, because in the weird system that they had at the time, Austria-Hungary was a dual crown government, where yeah. Austria and Hungary are one country, but actually two countries, but actually one country, and um, Vienna and Budapest are kind of working together, but also kind of rivals. And, awkward. Yes. Yeah, yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's awkward. It, it's it's like um, it's like a person with two heads or something, <laughs> constantly, you know, arguing or something. They share yeah. a currency. They share a foreign ministry and an army. At least most of the army is shared, but otherwise they have separate governments. And there's this internal balance of power going, game going on between Hungary and Austria within the country. And Hungary does not want to see Austria get any more powerful, and vice versa. And so mm. each of them are actually actively stirring up the various Slavic peoples within each other's lands in an attempt to kind of screw it up for the other guy. <laughs> well, yeah, and, and <laughs> even within that, you have kind of an ethnic uh, fight going on because Austria, that, that's more German, right? They're, they're German-speaking, and yes. then Hungary is, is Slavic, correct? Y yes. Uh, to, to an extent? I, well. I, I'm not sure if... Hungarians actually consider themselves Slavs or not. I should look that up. Mm -hmm. Here, I'm, I'm going to look that up real quick. Hungarians are not Slavic. Aside from oh. Austria and Romania, Hungary is surrounded by Slavic nations, so it comes as a surprise to many that Hungarians aren't Slavic as well. Consider me surprised. <laughs> the origins <laughs> of Hungarians, or Magyars as they call themselves, mm -hmm. is a topic of heated debate and fantastical theories abound. <laughs> <laughs> I'll admit, I'll admit my own and get back to you on that. <laughs> yeah. 
Okay, so so Hungarians are not actually, they don't actually consider themselves Slavic. Um, but nor are they German. But nor are they German. Yeah. Um, but both of them have Slavic peoples within them. So it's it's a very multicultural situation at the time that multiculturalism was definitely not considered a good thing. No. <laughs> um, in fact, uh, Germany kind of looked contemptuously at Austria because of this multiculturalism. They weren't pure um, mm-hmm. in, this, in the nationalistic sense. So basically, they're trying to fuck with each other, right? And that's right. that's the kind of times that we're talking about here. And Austria-Hungary's skin in the game is basically what we said. They, they want to build a rail through the Balkans while playing this passive-aggressive mind game kind of thing within their own government. All right, moving on to the German player. So Germany wants the Ottoman lands, but not necessarily as its own territories. It mainly needs them to be friendly to German ambitions because they want a conduit to the Middle East. They Mm. want to build a railroad. So again, (laughs) now it's starting to seem like Ticket to Ride or some kind of game like that, right? They want to build a railroad from Berlin to Baghdad. And so they need people willing to let them do that. And right now, the only the only obstacle to that really is the Balkan state of Serbia, which is hostile to Germany at this time. Uh, so they want to deal with Serbia while keeping the rest of the Balkan region amenable to their interests. Meanwhile, they have also been catching wind of a potential anti-German coalition building among the other powers. So they want to you know, put the kibash on that if they Wait, can. I'm sorry, and you yeah. cut this part. How are they going to get over the the Dardanelles? Oh, uh, uh, how are they going to going to cross from from uh? Well, I don't know. That's a, good, Asia. that's a good question. I don't know if they would plan to build a bridge. Certainly not. No, you right? don't think so? That's, yeah, I don't know. That is odd. I I, I don't know. I'll I'll leave it huh. to the uh, engineers there to answer how they would do that. I didn't read that in my reading. Uh, maybe it's that the the rail would go most of the way, and they'd have a ferry connecting two rails. I don't know. I, I, they would, yeah. There might be something along those lines. I don't know. It's curious. So anyway, they've been hearing that maybe there's some whispers of an anti-German coalition coming up. So they wanna they wanna squash that as quick as they can. And finally, what they they want to maintain something going on at the time called the Three Emperors League. It's not quite an alliance, but kind of a handshake between the emperors of Germany, Austria-Hungary, and Russia, which together are powerful enough to balance out both Britain and France if they were to ally. So, balance of power thinking. So, a handshake between cousins. Because most of these yeah, guys are related, of, right? Mo- yeah, most yeah. Of them, yeah. yeah, most of them are cousins, yeah. Okay, next we have Russia. Russia wants to expand its influence in the Black Sea region. And much like Austria-Hungary, they're eager to flex some nuts in order to be taken seriously because not long ago they suffered a pretty humiliating defeat in the Crimean War. They freed their serfs in no small part to boost their international reputation after this, which we saw in our Russian serfdom series. Yep. Um, Russia's also friends with Serbia, which is helping to block German rail expansion, as we just heard. Um, and this friendship with Serbia will actually be key when World War I does break out because Austria-Hungary's declaration of war on Serbia will bring Russia into the war. But all, that's, all that is yet to come. Okay, 
So right now, actually, Russia is open to dividing the Ottoman territories with Austria-Hungary. And meanwhile, they are keen to get more friends in the region while taking Turkey down a notch. And actually, that's what they've just done at this point in history. They just fought and won the Russo-Turkish War. And in the concluding treaty of San Stefano, 1878, they actually forced Turkey to grant independence to Bulgaria and make it like a huge state, too huge, in mm. fact. And that's actually going to trigger much of what our article will talk about today. But we'll get to that. Okay. So Russia's in intention here is to have one or more large powers uh, as like allies and friends in the region so they can exert more influence. Finally, Britain and France. So Britain and France are both worried about Russia and Austria-Hungary growing too strong by taking over Ottoman territories. And Britain in particular, who controls Egypt right now, wants to stem the growth of Russian power in the Mediterranean. And France also has North African colonies. So they both want to keep their colonial and trade interests flowing in the Mediterranean. So Britain and France are actively propping up the Ottomans, keeping it afloat when they know that it's a failing state. It's kind of like, like parents letting your... Your kid stay in the basement, even though he's like over 30, you know? <laughs> so, right. Yeah. Paying his, paying his school debts and everything. You know? <laughs> Except your kid is the old man of Europe. Yeah, exactly. And exactly. the sick man of Europe. The sick man, the sick of, man Europe, of Europe. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but the reason they're doing it is because they don't want Russia and Austria-Hungary to get it. So they're trying to keep the Ottomans alive. Now... Those are That's all the major powers. As for the Balkan peoples themselves, well, to be completely honest, their opinions don't really count for shit in this kind of game. They're really just pawns. But if you ask them what each of them generally wants is going to be self-rule, and if they can get that, then dominance over the rest of the Balkan people, which, why not, right? And, <laughs> but, and Serbia, yeah. Serbia in particular, wants Bosnia-Herzegovina, as a route to the sea. So if you look at it on the map, like that's the only way they can really realistically go to get any mm -hmm. kind of a port. And the fact that Austria is eyeing that up too is major is a major concern for them. Um, by 1912, many of these Balkan states have attained a shaky independence, but as we're going to see in our article shortly, their fortunes are very much tied up in what, whatever the great powers decide, and their independence can just be yanked away, basically... Uh, they could be gambled away like chips on a gaming table, basically. <laughs> so they're pretty precarious. Yeah. That's the basic situation that we're in right here. Powers of Europe, they're sharpening their knives and salivating all of their handlebar mustaches. <laughs> 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 Calling the Ottoman Empire the sick man of Europe. Yeah. Because they know it's on its death deathbed, it's only a matter of time. And the peoples of the Balkans know it too, and they, they feel that the time is right for them to rise up seize their independence, and if they can only just get their shit together and, you know, manage to you know, do it. So, and, and by the way, this, just a tangent here, I'm actually part Balkan myself, my mom's side. Oh. Um, their maiden name is Rodic, and they come from Slovenia, which is the Slavic nation in the northwest part of the, the Balkans, bordering Italy, which shares a lot of culture with Italy. Um, so I'm part Slovenian. Um, and actually, try, not be, try not to be too biased, okay? Try, <laughs> the the <laughs> Slovenian nationalism is flowing like a river today. <laughs> actually, I don't, I don't really know much about Slovenia. Uh, I, m 
next week, as we're recording next week, will be Mother's Day, and my mm-hmm. mom's coming to teach me her pizza recipe. So. Thanks for the reminder. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <Thanks. laughs> I, I'm not reminding the listeners, though, because it, it'll be last week for them by the time they hear this. Yeah. So, listeners, if you forgot it, shame on you. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so anyway, back to the Balkans. It's time for us to get to our article now. So like I said, this is from 1912, two years before the outbreak of World War I. It's from a New York publication called The Outlook, which apparently started out as a Christian publication, but by this time has switched to political and social commentary. And I'm sure it, it, everything always has some kind of political bias, but I wasn't able to tell what kind, so make of that what you will. Author is a guy named uh, Albert Edwards, and he's one of this magazine's special correspondents in the Balkans at the time. He's traveled extensively in Muslim countries, And at the time of this article, December of 1912, the first Balkan War has just broken out uh, two months back in October. And so that's now the what nationality is the or what 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 country is the outlook based out of or um, America, New York. Yes, it's out of New York, York. so it'd be an American publication. Okay, okay, so we get an American view of of what's going on in the Balkans, basically. Uh, Okay, so the First Balkan War is um, a war between the Balkan Federation that we mentioned earlier, and that would be Greece, Serbia, Bulgaria, and Montenegro, basically seeing that the time is right to rise up, attacking the Ottoman Empire and trying to take over more of the Balkan Peninsula from them. And that's the impetus for this article. The author is attempting to explain the complexities behind this war that has just broken out. Okay, so let's go to it now. He starts out writing, and I, and I love the way he starts out, because it's just so bemonicled, you know? <laughs> it's, like, <laughs> um, it's like this kind of like, oh, I was on a boat one day. Okay, so it says, A man from Chicago, a professor of Greek, a retired English army officer, and I were playing a peaceful game of bridge in the smoking room. The steamer was... As you do. The steamer was seven days out from New York, somewhere between the Azores and Gibraltar. We were suddenly interrupted by a burst of wild cheering from the steerage. There were 1,800 Greek reservists aboard, going home to the war. And as we learned by rushing out on the promenade deck, the captain was reading to them a message just received by wireless. The Bulgarian army had broken through the line of forts about Kirkkilisa. The Greek army was entering Salonika. So they're like, yay, go Greece. And these guys are like, what the hell's going on down there, right? (laughs) What were these Greek soldiers doing out in the Atlantic? They saw their Greek reservists between the Azores and Gibraltar. Yeah, so I'm wondering if they were actually um, Greek Americans. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. um, To kind of contribute to the the war. Yeah. Um, Okay, so he goes on. What's all this row about? The man from Chicago. I don't know why the Chicago guy has an English accent. He did say he was a retired English army officer. Okay, that's okay. Okay. I subconsciously got it. Correct. What's all this row about? The man from Chicago asked as he picked up the cards for a new deal when we had returned to the table. It reminds one of the story in the first reader, the Englishman said. No one took it seriously. They've yelled wolf, wolf too often from that quarter. I can't remember a year 
when there have not been rumors of trouble in the Balkans. Yes, the professor chimed mm. in. It is an old story. Oh, okay. I got it. So the, there's a man from Chicago, and there's a professor of Greek, a retired English army officer. They're two different people. Okay. okay. I read the grammar of that first sentence wrong. Or he's having a conversation with himself, which Maybe. You know, okay, might also so. make sense. Yes. Two, two professor, people. The professor chimed in. It is an old story. It goes back at least to Demosthenes. Trouble in the Balkans was the subject of his Philippics. <laughs> uh, dinky little toy countries, no bigger than postage stamps, the man from Chicago said. I should give him like an Obama accent if he's from Chicago. Yeah, <laughs> <All right>. certainly. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> I can't do it. (laughs) Can't do it while you're laughing. Can't do it. (laughs) Dinky little toy countries, no bigger than postage stamps, the man from Chicago said. They're uh, worse than our Central American republics. Why doesn't somebody give them a spanking? (laughs) Spanking, the English officer exclaimed. My word, man. Why, sir, Bulgaria alone has a bigger army than the United States. Bigger and a whole lot better. Toy countries. Why? There are more men in the field today than there were in the Franco-Prussian War. And back of the actual hostilities in the Balkans there is, there can't help being a European crisis. It's the biggest thing our generation has seen. Well, the man from Chicago persisted, only half convinced that the matter was serious. What's it all about? Trouble in the Balkans goes much further back than Demosthenes. And here I think this is where the author is kind of like breaking out of the scene and just starting to narrate. Okay, skipping a little bit further down. But from a modern point of view, the Balkan question dates from the diplomatic congress which met at Vienna to rearrange the map which Napoleon had so desperately disturbed. Okay, so what he's talking about was the Congress of Vienna. And if you've ever played the computer game uh, Civilization Five, I don't know if mm. you've ever played that, Adam? Yeah. Yeah? Um, you know, yeah. before the UN, there's the, uh, the World Congress... Yeah, it, it was like that. That was based off of these things, which are basically, it wasn't a UN yet, but the powers were coming together to try to talk out their problems. And, you know, it was diplomacy better than medieval standards. Give them what we can. Give them a pass. It was good for the <laughs> times. Okay, so skipping a little further down. Uh, the author continues, the idea that nations might live together as friends on any basis of justice was foreign to them. The only right they recognized was might. Okay, well, not that much better than medieval. Yeah. Um, as the amount of booty to be distributed was limited, it was evident that everybody could not be satisfied. The best they could hope for was a modus vivendi, which I assume is way of, uh, yeah, way of life in Latin. Okay. The best they could hope for was a way of life, until Europe could gather breath for a new war. The other powers were too jealous of Austria and Russia to allow either of them to take the Balkans, so the territory was left to Turkey. So, in the Congress, they they decided who was going to get what. They gave it to Turkey. Yeah. If we can't have it, nobody can. Well, well, Turkey can. We'll give we'll yeah. give it to Tur- we'll throw Turkey on. <laughs> <Well, he's... laughs> right. Yeah. The people of this peninsula were not then any more than they are now Turks. So now he's going into the actual Balkan peoples. 
The hordes of immigration which had passed through had each left its mark, if not by pure blood groups, at least by hybridization. Since the Osmanli Turks conquered the country in the 15th century, the principal elements of the population have been three. Number one, the pure Slavs, Serbs, Montenegrins, Bosnians, Croats, etc. Number two, the Bulgars, who although quite different in origin, have been thoroughly Slavonized, like Slavized, I guess. Yeah. And number three, the Greeks, one of the most mixed-blooded races of Europe, for they have crossbred with every Mediterranean people. There is also a considerable number of Jews and Armenians, and scattered all over the peninsula, there are smaller groups, the Albanians are the most important, over the origin of whom the ethnologists are continually writing ponderous and contradictory volumes. So, little ethnography there. Um, then he talks about the religions, which is a big thing here, too. The mixture of religions is even more intricate. The Turks are not proselytizers like the Arabs, and very few of the native peoples have embraced Islam. But besides mm -hmm. the Jews, there are Christians of every confession, Gregorians, Nestorians, Protestants, Catholics, and above all, Greek Orthodox. But of these Orthodox Christians, some give allegiance to the Patriarch of Constantinople, some belong to the Russian schism, and the Serbs have a patriarch of their own, and the Bulgars get along without anyone. Hmm. So that becomes a really big thing. Religion becomes huge. Um, and in the episode just previous to this, we talked about nationalism, and we saw how religion is very easily wrapped up in nationalism. In fact, yeah. uh, we saw how the Poles became fanatically Catholic as a way of kind of giving the middle finger to the Orthodox <laughs> Russians who are oppressing them, whereas the Bohemians, which are basically the Czech people, became fanatically anti-religious as a way of giving a, the middle finger to, I think it was the Austrians who were yeah. trying to oppress them. So it quickly becomes wrapped up in identity, and the same thing happens here. The religions of these various peoples becomes a major sticking point in trying to kind of get any kind of joint action going. In the days of the Vienna Congress, the Balkan Peninsula was the dark spot of Europe. Christendom was becoming enlightened only in spots. So in other words, saying they're still pretty backwards at that point. Most of the people born in Europe during the life of Napoleon never learned their alphabets, but there was no corner of Christendom at the beginning of the last century as dark as the Balkan Peninsula. It was the scene of the worst despotism Europe has ever seen, and the tyranny of the <laughs> I uns... say it a lot. <laughs> I, I, there's a little bit of the bias coming up. <laughs> a little bit, yeah. The tyranny of the unspeakable Turk had been upon it for close on four centuries. The people had forgotten their ancient liberties. No Serb remembered the 13th century glories of Oskub. No Bulgar knew the legends of the brave old days just a thousand years ago when Tsar Simon I ruled from sea to sea and besieged Constantinople. The Greeks had forgotten Pericles and Marathon. So in other words, mm. basically he's saying these peoples, although having glorious pasts, have they've just been so downtrodden for so long, they've kind of lost their heritage and are just kind of country pumpkins. Which yeah. becomes a big, um, kind of a, a, a funny moment when the Greek War of Independence happens, because you get like all these Western Europeans being like, oh, Greece, wouldn't it be great mm. to help them get their independence, you know? But they go there, yeah. and they're like nothing like the classical <laughs> Greeks. Right? Yeah, they imagine 
you know, uh, see, seeing Aristotle sitting, exactly. you know, or, or walking with his students, exactly. you know, philosophizing. <laughs> exactly. And I read this, <laughs> this one report of somebody um, like that who went there and he met with this like local militia leader or something, kind of a big shot at the time. And out of respect, he addressed yeah. him as Achilles. And in response, <laughs> in response, the guy said, Who's that? Is he good with a musket? Oh, no! <laughs> yeah. Oh. And I don't, I don't know if he really didn't, had never heard of Achilles, or if he just didn't mean anything to him. Like, he's just some folk uh, guy. I don't, what does that to me? I don't know. But, okay. So, that's kind of the situation of the peoples there. Uh, only the people of the Black Mountain held their heads erect. The history of the world does not recount a more heroic struggle than that by which the Montenegrins kept their independence. Nor does history record a social organization more utterly military. Cowardice was mm. forbidden by law. Even today, a Montenegrin who appears in public with his revolver unloaded is liable to arrest. <laughs> <laughs> How's well, that? Not any good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, and I thought Americans were crazy about their guns. <laughs> Montenegrans. <laughs> Montenegrans in 1912. <laughs> yeah. That's, yeah. You could be arrested if you don't have bullets in your gun. Not, not just not carrying a gun, but if it's unloaded, you're going to jail. How yeah. dare you? And a little later in the article, a part that we're going to skip over, um, it also says that within the last few years, Nicholas, who's the leader of the Montenegrins, has sent to jail some of his subjects who lacked the spirit to avenge the murder of their kin. The vendetta is compulsory. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow, right? Yeah. That's... So, again, interesting oh. characterization of these mountain me peoples, right? Um, never heard of, uh, you know, feuds being, right. you know, coded into law. Yeah. That's And I, I imagine... Odd. Okay, you're you're in Kentucky, is that right? No, I'm in Louisiana, but oh, I, Louisiana. I, I was stationed in Kentucky for a while, so I'm oh, familiar. Gotcha. gotcha. Yeah. Okay. So Hatfields and McCoys—is that where you were going? It, yeah, yeah. I've, <laughs> I've also got friends in Kentucky. Um, like one of them lived adjacent to Soldier County, that has like the highest uh, murder rate in the country, or something mm-hmm. like that. Even even today. Um, Kentucky's a great place. Yeah. <laughs> don't, just not... Some places you don't go unless you're invited. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, no, I've been there. I visited my yeah. friends. I loved it. It was a great okay. place. But, oh, yeah, it's, it's beautiful. beautiful. But there, you know, there are certain, there are certain aspects. Anyway. Sure. Okay, so back to the story. With the exception of this tiny kingdom, Montenegro, hardly more than a mountain clan, no light shone in the Balkans. The people were utterly cowed and utterly poor, for the Turkish masters were as greedy as they were cruel. But even Turkish rule is not light-proof. The wonderful march of progress which the last century brought to Western Europe had its effect even in this forgotten corner. <laughs> <laughs> it was a Greek, Alexandre Ypsilanti, who in 1821 first raised the flag of revolt. It was in 1829, after many suppressed uprisings after great loss of life that the independence of Greece was at last conceded. This was the first serious rupture of the status quo contrived by the diplomats 
in Vienna. They did not like to see their plans deranged and were slow in acknowledging the new country. So Greece is first. They, they do the Greek War of Independence and manage to break away. In 1856, the two northeastern provinces of Turkey, uh, being Moldavia and Wallachia, won their independence. Five years later, Prince Kuza united them into the Principality of Romania. Once more, the status quo had been ruptured. The diplomats could not turn back the hands on the clock of progress, so they contented themselves by putting Charles von Hohenzollern on the throne in place of the native prince. So basically, the Balkan peoples are being like, we ain't going to take it anymore, right? They're singing <laughs> their twisted, sister, yeah. yeah, they're singing their <laughs> twisted sister song. Um, and the diplomats are like, you guys are messing it up, quit it. <laughs> oh, just, I, just, I just can't have, uh, help but imagine like yeah. children playing with yeah. toys and say, know. you know, if, if I can't play with it, nobody can play with it. You messed up my, you know, my tower out of blocks that I built. Exactly. But, but children with awesome mustaches, yeah. obviously. It, it, it would be like the, the daddy's toy train in the basement that the kids Yeah. Play. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So now he's going to head in now, I think, to um, the, the Congress of Berlin that attempts to deal with all this situation, among other things. Uh, partly because of the pressure of European capitalists, and partly because of a short-lived liberal ministry at Constantinople, the first railways were laid in the Balkans in the early 60s. Locomotives are powerful missionaries. They carry ideas as well as commerce. The rumble of the Crimean War shook the peninsula. The Serbs, inspired by the heroic example of Montenegro and encouraged by promises of help from Austria, made a desperate and futile revolt, but the fire could not be put out. In 1875, the Bulgars rose. Russia, always looking for a warm water port and having recovered from her Crimean reverses, seized the pretext of a Slavic Orthodox people in distress to declare war on Turkey. So this is the Russo-Turkish War. Here. They're saying they're helping out the Bulgarians, but as we heard, they've got their own interests. Yeah, because Russia, you know, by this time, they consider themselves the, the protector of all who are, you know, Orthodox Christian, right? Just like, yeah. you know, Constantinople used yes. to. So that was kind of their, you know, calls for war. Yes, there was the idea of pan-Slavism, that somehow yeah. all the Slavic peoples should kind of be buddy-buddies to some degree. And... Whether that was really just a cover for Russia expanding their influence, I will let the listener decide. I don't yeah, know. But wink, wink. Yeah, wink, wink. Um, okay, so the important thing to note in regard to that conflict is the undisputed fact that Russia would not have won the Battle of Plevna without the help of the Romanians and Bulgars. Finally, camped on almost the same ground where the latest dispatches tell us the Allies are preparing for a final battle, Russia forced from Turkey the Treaty of San Stefano. This is the one where they create a gigantic Bulgaria in order to expand their influence. By its terms, a semi-independent principality of Bulgaria under nominal Turkish suzerainty was created. This new nation was to extend from the Danube to the Aegean Sea. Russia was to be allowed to station troops in this new Bulgaria. The territory of Montenegro was tripled in this treaty, taking in most of the present Servia, and it's S-E-R-V 
I A at this time instead of hmm. the, with the B like we're used to. Yeah. And so cutting off the provinces of Bosnia and Herzegovina from the rest of Turkey. But this solution of the Balkan question did not suit the other powers. Right? They've got they've all got their mission cards in front of them and they're like, this isn't gonna work. <laughs> This new Bulgaria would stretch straight across Austria's hope of someday reaching Salonika. That's their mm -hmm. railway mission. Mm -hmm. The famous Drang nach Osten, which I looked up means spread to the east, had already set in. The German people were turning their eyes to the rich markets of the Levant and Orient. In those days, the Russian bear was the particular nightmare of England. A Slavic power in control of the Dardanelles threatened her supremacy in the Mediterranean. Lord Beaconsfield, who was the prime minister at the time, history is, knows him better as Benjamin Disraeli. Oh, okay. That guy. <laughs> that um, guy. Lord Beaconsfield issued a call for volunteers at home and began rushing troops westward from India. Russia, expecting the support of the all-powerful Bismarck, Chancellor of Germany at the time, mm -hmm. consented to a European Congress. It convened at Berlin on June 13th, 1878. So now this is the Congress of Berlin. Yes. And he's going to, the author's going to focus a lot on this. And this is hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> At least what I read from it outside of this. It's just, it's such a game of just bemonical diplomacy that just, oh man. And there's a little kind of like side tidbits. Um, so first of all, the, um, Lord Beaconsfield, Benjamin Disraeli, um, his sort of underling assistant that he had with him described him as not having the dimmest idea of what is going on, understanding <laughs> everything crossways and imagining a perpetual conspiracy. <laughs> and the Russian underling... Just the guy you want, you know, representing the, the world's most exactly, powerful empire. Exactly. Time, yes. And actually the, the underling of the Russian delegate described him the same way. So the <laughs> Russian guy is also just like not really understanding. Apparently. Yeah. Um, meanwhile, Bismarck, the chancellor of Germany, uh, shows up with an unaccustomed beard, uh, which was much <clears throat> remarked upon. He usually had the handlebar mustache, but this time he's got a beard. Yeah, um, fashion statement. Fashion statement. And also his shingles were flaring up. So he's he's kind of in pain, and the only thing yeah. that can dull the pain apparently is a jug of port wine every morning. So he shows up to every day of this conversation <laughs> off his ass, and he's remarked upon as um, having his already short temper being shortened and speaking with uh, difficulty among hiccups. <laughs> so this is an interesting little event in history here. Yeah. Okay, so, the Congress of Berlin. None of the circumstances which somewhat excuse the lack of foresighted, enlightened statesmanship of the Vienna Congress can be cited in extenuation of the stupidities decreed by that of Berlin. Europe was three-quarters of a century older. With the exception of the two belligerents, every power represented had accepted the principle of constitutional government. A man named Darwin had written a book which had persuaded almost everyone that a status quo was as abhorrent to politics as a vacuum is to nature. So that might be a reference to social Darwinism, which Darwin yeah. is actually not about. No, no. That was more like Herbert Spencer. And stuff like that. <clears throat> yeah. In any case, 
Nevertheless, these plenipotentiaries deliberated in the spirit of their predecessors. Instead of trying to erect a structure of peace on the base of justice, they followed the dreary old routine of secret conspiracies. No one asks, how much do you deserve? But rather, how much will you give me if I let you have what you want? <laughs> yeah, so I imagine there's a lot of backroom dealing going exactly. on here. Exactly. Yeah. Quid pro quo is another classic phrase of diplomacy. Justice? Yeah. No. They were searching for a modus vivendi, that way of life. Yeah. So this this was kind of it. another little side here. So humanitarian interests is like nothing. It counts for nothing at, at this game, basically. And and to show that, whenever anyone brings up the interests of the actual Balkan peoples in drawing hmm. up these borders and stuff, Bismarck, who's kind of like the MC of this, yeah, uh, just slaps it down. Um, yeah. And Turkey was only there, basically, to give up whatever territory the other powers decided was appropriate. And yeah. whenever they brought up um, this kind of Muslim refugee crisis that was happening, of all the Muslims living in the Balkans fleeing over to the what we think of more as the <laughs> Turkey you know, the, mm-hmm. today, the peninsula part, Anatolia, right? Um, there's all this, there's a refugee crisis, and there's also massacres of Muslims going on at the hands of Russian troops. And when the Turkish representative brings this up, again, they just get the smackdown from Bismarck. Like, yeah, go away. Yeah. Nobody, That's not wanted, what we're here nobody for. wanted to hear that. They just they didn't want to hear that. So this is this was not at all a humanitarian conference. It was it was a negotiation of the balance of power. That's mm-hmm. that's what's going on here. Having weighed the military force that was back of each representative, having called each bluff, they began work on the map. Bismarck had cynically betrayed Russia, so all they had to do was to balance the ambitions and hatreds and force of the Austro-German combination against the force and hatreds and ambitions of Russia. And I'm not completely sure what the betrayal exactly was. I think maybe it's just that Bismarck told Russia you can't have that giant Bulgaria. I'm not sure exactly what the betrayal was. Bessarabia, a province inhabited almost exclusively by Romanians, was given to the Tsar. Uh, the Tsar of Russia or the Tsar of Romania? Or Bulgaria? There's a lot of Tsars right now. <laughs> uh, look, Listeners, look it up. <laughs> yeah. He was also allowed to keep the Armenians of the Transcaucasus. Okay, I think so, the Tsar of Russia. Yeah, that would make sense. Austria was given the, the administ- czar. The yeah, the the czar. Yes, <laughs> Austria was given the administration of Bosnia and Herzegovina, and the right to establish garrisons in Novi Bazar. This cut a lane through the Balkan Slavs and left the way open to Salonika. Now this is really weird and crazy and super key to the start of World War One. Why were the Austrians given Bosnia? Herzegovina. So, what happened was, Austria's representative at the Congress of Berlin, his name was Andrasi, basically did the, exactly that kind of backroom dealing that you were talking mm-hmm. about, right? He obtained this backroom deal with Britain so that Britain would go then publicly into the game, into the yeah. you know, Congress, and propose that Austria occupy Bosnia-Herzegovina for the sake of keeping stability in the region. Yeah. Okay, that's the justification. 
And the brilliant part about this, well, okay, so Turkey would remain sovereign over the country, but basically Austria is occupying it and administering it. Now, the brilliant part of this is that Turkey's main ally had always been Britain. And so yeah. if Britain was the one suggesting this, they couldn't really slap it down without offending Britain. Right. So their hand is going to be tied. So Bosnia-Herzegovina is then given over to Austria. But conveniently, since Turkey is still allowed to retain sovereignty over this territory, they are still <laughs> responsible for all its debts. <laughs> Isn't that great? <laughs> Ugh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's also this interesting bit that I read too. When the annexation is complete, the actual occupation of Bosnia Herzegovina, Franz Ferdinand, the heir to the Austrian throne, writes a letter to the foreign minister that accomplishes this, saying, Great job. Now, rule it with an iron fist. <laughs> and he says, quote, the main thing is to keep the peace in Bosnia with an iron rod. We have to keep an especially tight rein on the Serbs in Bosnia. Keep them frightened. Spare the rods, pull the Bosnian. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. yeah. So that's, this is the main thing that sets in motion the weird setup for the assassination in Sarajevo that starts mm. World War I going. Okay. All right. So just a little bit left of the article here. Okay, so um, these two principal rivals having been attended to, so uh, Austria and Russia, and they're both wanting the Balkans, right? Mm -hmm. um, the Congress proceeded to what Bismarck cynically called the distribution of tips. <laughs> so, in other words, here, you get this, you get this, you get this. Good job, you get this. <laughs> right. Um, the complete independence of a small section of the Serbs was decreed. Romania was also declared independent. And, you know, all of these, a lot of these places have already kind of been basically risen up and gained their independence, yeah. but this is recognizing independence um, now. So. Yeah. To compensate her, so Romania, to compensate her for the loss of half her people to Russia, she was given the province of Dobrugia. Dubrudia, not sure how to say it, which is inhabited by Bulgars. The independence which Montenegro had never lost was recognized. What were left of the Bulgars were divided into two sections. Those to the south, in eastern Rumelia, were given back to Turkey. The northern sections were formed into a principality in Fife to the port. The port is the Ottoman government. They call okay. it like the port in the same way we call Washington, the American government. All right. Um, so that huge Bulgaria is divided in two. And Turkey has strict control over the Eastern Romania part and n only nominal control over the other part. It's really pretty much independent. But in any case, much reduced from what it was and much less of a threat to the other powers. England was given Cyprus, France the permission to take Tunisia, and then the Congress, having divided up half of Turkey and Europe, solemnly guaranteed the integrity of the Ottoman Empire and adjourned. <laughs> Job well done. Yes. <laughs> I see old chap. So, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so it's, they just, like, 
willy-nilly kind of divide things up here. Okay, yeah. you're feeling slighted. Okay, take a little bit of Romania and just, yeah. And I'll, I'll give Romania a little bit of somebody else's and everybody will be happy in the end, right? Meanwhile, the people there are like, what, what country do I belong to, right? <laughs> this is a confusing game of musical countries. This is, yes, exactly. This is, yeah. I can't even imagine, you know? So meanwhile, the people of the Balkans are just like, no, okay. So nobody's happy with this, really, except for Germany. Because, so you have to look at, so who, who really won this game in the end? And it's kind of surprising. Because everybody seems to get a piece of the pie except Germany. Mm -hmm. And Germany had actually gone into this offering their services as an honest broker, quote unquote. Yeah. As like a sort of neutral mediator because they don't have a skin in the game of colonies. Sure. They're not looking to make colonies or even expand their territory. So mm -hmm. they're like, oh, we'll mediate. You guys can all get everything that you want, right? But in fact, Germany comes out of it smelling like a dozen roses. Because um, they don't care that they didn't get any territory because they didn't want any in the first place. But what they did want was to undermine that potential anti-German coalition that it mm -hmm. seemed to be forming and maintain the Three Emperors League of Germany, Austria, and Russia, right? That was their mission right. card. And the Treaty of San Stefano had threatened that because it could have pit Russia, which was newly powerful in the region because of that huge new Bulgaria as their friend mm -hmm. would have pit Russia against Austria, who also coveted that region. And that would have potentially broken up the three emperors league, which would have left Germany alone and like easy to being taken over by a, an alliance of somebody else. Right. So that was their main defense strategy and they managed to maintain it. Yeah, Bismarck even drunk was, yeah, was even, greater than <laughs> even Bishing the other players. Drunk. Yes, <laughs> and, and bearded. He, yeah. he still won that game the with a nice thing. chuckle chuckle. Um, <laughs> so given the result at the Congress of Berlin, which forestalled the brawl between Austria and Russia, maintained the status of quo of the balance of power, and even got Serbia to promise part of the railroad Germany wanted using its ally... Con so I don't think I mentioned this yet, but... Okay, so part of the condition of Serbia's independence was they had to allow an Austrian contractor to build a railway from Belgrade to the border of Macedonia. Hmm. So I can imagine how that would have formed part of that railroad that Germany wanted yeah, to connect. Yeah, a small section of... Yes, yeah. yes. And Austria was Germany's ally, so it all fits, right? So yeah. they got that part of their mission card fulfilled too. So at the end of the day, it was really Germany's... Um, Bismarck, the so-called honest broker that laid his cards on the table, you know, chuckled and was like, better luck yeah. next time, chaps. <laughs> Give me my porter. <laughs> Give me my porter. I don't know why Bismarck has a British, a British accent. accent. <laughs> it just seems like everybody has a British accent. Back there. I don't know. <laughs> Thanks so, a lot, Hollywood. Yeah. So the Congress ended, and everybody was like, oh, I feel so good. I got this territory. But then, like, a week later, they're like, shit. <laughs> Damn it, he swindled us again. Yeah. Ah, God. Uh, and nobody was more Meddling scared. kids and their pesky dog. Ah. <laughs> Would have got away with it, too. <laughs> right. So, yeah. Scooby-Doo. This is Scooby-Doo. <laughs> okay. 
So nobody was more um, swindled, really, than the Balkans. They weren't even swindled. They were just, like, just not even paid attention to. They are right. not happy at all. Um, and so They're things are not going to sit well, yeah. right? Um, so the period immediately following the Treaty of Berlin was for the Balkan people an, area of, an era of rapidly expanding thought of immense gains in material prosperity and of an intense development of the national spirit. So, kind of sounds good, but also it's like giving them hope that, hey, we mm-hmm. might be able to actually really gain independence for real here. The young people went abroad to school, to Paris, Vienna, or St. Petersburg. They became European. The present king of Serbia is a graduate of the French Military Academy of St. Cyr, C-Y-R, St. Cyr, St. Cyr. Freed from the curse of the t- Turkish tax gatherers, the immense natural riches of the land began to be changed into wealth. The youth of Serbia and Bulgaria began to read in the historical textbooks of Europe of the ancient glory of their ancestors. Long-forgotten national songs were revived. Old customs and costumes were fostered. So as things get better, they also rediscover their own pride. Right. Nationalism starts to really pick up steam. Mm. Um, Then you get something called the Young Turks in um, the Ottoman Empire that kind of do a revolution and establish a constitutional monarchy instead of an absolute kind of despotism type of thing. Um, you get the Balkan League of Greece, Serbia, Montenegro, and Bulgaria, who then decide, okay, time is ripe for us to rise up. So they join together and they uh, start the first Balkan war by attacking the remaining Ottoman holdings in the Balkans. Okay. Which are severely diminished anyway. After Already Berlin. diminished, yeah. but there's, there's still some of them. Yeah. Okay, um, I think now at this point, I'm going to go back to my script here and take care of the cleanup of the, of the context here. Okay, so, so what the article gave us was that background to that first Balkan War, right? Mm-hmm. And what happens is the Balkan states win, but no sooner than they do so, then they decide to turn on each other. <laughs> of course. Yeah. <laughs> common, common foe aside. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, so what happened was before the war, Bulgaria had made a secret deal with Serbia that it was going to be the one to get control of Macedonia when the war is done. But by the conclusion of the war, Serbia and Greece both decided, hey guys, you know what? <laughs> Look, we all managed to take over different territories. Let's just let's just keep what we got, and everything will be cool. Just w- whatever territories you're sitting on right now, you just keep them. Let's not bother with redistributing things. It's all yeah. good, right? But conveniently, they're sitting on Macedonia. Uh-huh. Yeah. So Bulgaria <laughs> is like, what? <laughs> so Bulgaria is like, screw that. And it attacks Serbia and Greece and starts the second Balkan War. But then, seeing that Bulgaria... <laughs> if you enjoyed the first... If you would... Yeah. <laughs> You'll love the second Balkan War. Exactly. Yeah. Balkan War 2. <laughs> the catchy like sequel title would be for that. Like, Bulgaria's comeback, or Bulgaria Strikes Back. Yeah. Um, but then, seeing that Bulgaria is then tied up fighting Serbia and Greece, Romania, that's on the other side of Bulgaria, geographically, is like, ooh opportunity 
So Romania then attacks Bulgaria. So now Bulgaria is surrounded on all sides by enemies, and that just never goes well. So they really lose out big time in the Second Balkan War. And with this major humbling of Bulgaria, Russia loses one of its major means of influence in the region, which causes it to have to double down on its only other real friend in the region, which is Serbia. Mm -hmm. And this is super important because at this point now, Russia becomes super anxious to show its support for Serbia when the shit hits the fan in 1914. Yeah, we see everything lining up now. Yes, yes. So the assassination comes because Franz Ferdinand, who's not even the emperor of Austria-Hungary yet, he's Mm -hmm. just the heir to the throne, has plans. But the emperor is really old, right? He's pretty, yeah. He's I mean, old. he's he's kind of on his, you know, it's his last days. I Yeah, I think years. so. Yeah. I, I'm not sure. I, I didn't really look at that part, but that sounds right. I think he's pretty old. Yeah. Um, so, Franz Ferdinand, the heir, has plans to give greater autonomy to ethnic groups within the empire, such as the Serbs in Bosnia-Herzegovina, and that pisses off the Serbs in Bosnia-Herzegovina. <laughs> Why? It sounds great, right? But yeah. they're not stupid. They realize that it's actually a ploy to try to pacify them by giving them a little of what they want, uh, when if they just hold out, they can actually get full independence. Okay. Or at least that's the thinking of the radicals that are in organizations like the Black Hand. Okay? So... If they let Franz Ferdinand put his plan into effect, they're really going to lose their only real chance at an independent Bosnia. So, off with his head. Um, <laughs> I'm not going to go into all the details of the assassination because that's actually pretty well covered um, yeah. by documentaries and whatnot. And there's even <laughs> on Netflix right now, there's even a period drama about it called Sarajevo. So, <clears throat> check that out if you want. But anyway, following the July 1914 assassination of Franz Ferdinand, in Bosnia by the Serb terrorist Gavrilo Princip and the subsequent refusal of Serbia to allow a full unfettered investigation, Austria-Hungary declares war on Serbia. And now the Serb government had nothing to do with the assassination. It was a plot by this Black Hand terrorist organization and not directed by the government. Yeah. But basically Austria-Hungary wants revenge And they also know that their buddy Germany wants to see Serbia taken down so they can finish their ticket-to-ride railroad mission, right? Mm Mm-hmm. So they gamble on German support, and they attack. But this places Russia in a quandary. Now Russia has to choose between betraying Serbia and losing its only remaining bastion of influence in the Balkans, or supporting Serbia and joining the war. It chooses to join the war and begins mobilizing its forces. Germany sees this and is like, oh shit, we're going to have to fight (laughs) an enemy all along our eastern border, and so starts mobilizing its forces to defend against Russia. But the problem with that is Russia is allied with France, and oh, double shit, now we're going to have enemies on both eastern and western borders, which is like long been Germany's nightmare. Mm -hmm. And it's developed this thing called the Schlieffen Plan. Yes. Do you know the Schlieffen Plan? Yes. You want to give a quick rundown of the Schlieffen Plan? Oh, the sleeping plan. <laughs> well, in the case of a war on two fronts, Germany would invade France. I think it was initially always through Belgium mm-hmm. and knock them out of the game and then turn their forces towards Russia because they thought that Russia 
this big sleeping giant, so to speak, or this big sleeping bear was going to take forever to mobilize their forces. Right. But Russia uh, mobilized a lot quicker than was expected. Yeah, the Russian rails were a lot less developed than other countries, so it seemed like it was going to take a long time. Um, so the idea, as I understand it, yeah, is to take France out quick so you can turn and go full force against Russia by the time mm-hmm. they're ready to fight. Um, so they have to do that by going through Belgium because France has got all these massive fortifications along the German border. So yep. they're going to go in through Belgium. Problem is that Britain is pledged to defend Belgium, but Germany's got no choice. So they go ahead and invade Belgium. This brings Britain into the war. And so that's how you end up with the really weird situation that we mentioned in the very first episode of this series where you get British and French troops fighting side by side in the same trenches, despite having been enemies for oh, yeah, Ever? a long last time, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah, you know, going back to oh, forever, right? Yeah, um, basically. So that's it's it's all because of this crazy system of alliances known as the balance of power, because that's what it depended in order to balance each other out, and yeah. That's how that's how things really go wrong in the Balkans and everything hits you know shit hits the fan. <laughs> yeah, the dominoes start to topple. The dominoes but, start to topple. But you gotta give small countries, or I say small, but like Serbia and Belgium, you you gotta give them props for the fight that they put up. Oh, I mean, Serbia sure. held off Austria Hungary. You know, at Serio though, what I can't remember the name of the river that that flows through or north of Sarajevo. But yeah, they held them there. And and Belgium, too, stopped this mighty German war machine, which, I mean, is, is the, yeah. you know, it, it, it came from that mighty war machine you were talking about of Prussia yeah, under yeah. Frederick the First and Frederick the Great. And then they, the Belgians, uh, held off the, the German army for in quite a, quite a heroic stand. Yeah, they were, that was really a surprise to Germany, for sure. Yeah, um, Germany at the time they were they were telling their soldiers that these Belgians are just going to be quote unquote chocolate soldiers and they're just yeah yeah right yeah now. and they totally did it and in fact they had quite a bit of awesome fortifications too that mm-hmm. I read about of like these like underground cannon platforms that mm-hmm. would like get they were like on these huge chains that they would be brought up like up to the surface to fire and then they would go back down subterranean to reload so that you couldn't uh, you couldn't hit them by the end yeah. except when they're firing oh just amazing yeah so yeah it, it didn't go it like didn't really go like the stuff going on here yeah the Schlieffen yeah. plan was, wasn't pulled off mm-hmm. yeah but nevertheless but if at first you don't succeed, try, try again. Try, try again. <laughs> which, which, which they will do pretty much the same plan invading uh, and, France. And then it, and then it does kind of pull off. They do actually yeah. pretty well. In yeah, but they weren't at war with Russia at the time. True. Off the subject. So anyway, so we were trying to make sense of the Balkan situation. What do you think, Adam? Does it make sense now? Yeah, it's uh, it went into far more detail than you usually do. Yeah. And and for a monocled, mustachioed man, what was his name, Elders? He, he gave a pretty, uh, pretty good account of uh, of the happenings in Berlin in 1878. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Albert Edwards was the author of that article we were reading. I was, I thought it was it was pretty cool because it was exactly what I wanted to hear. You know, so yeah, yeah, I agree. Very cool. It takes for your commentary on that too. That was really interesting. So 
Okay, so well, uh, that's it for their episode, folks. Thanks for listening. Thank you, Adam, for being on the show. Thanks um, for having me. Absolutely. I've had a blast. Awesome. So did I. Um, we'll be back next week for the conclusion of our Balance of Power series, where we look at how Europe's jaw collectively dropped as it realized that the Balance of Power system had led to the very war that it had been designed to prevent. So that's what we'll be looking at next week. Folks, if you like what we're doing, why not support the show on Patreon? You can get great perks like your portrait drawn in the time period and culture of your choosing. Uh, you can be drawn as a U.S. Civil War cavalryman, just like Adam. <laughs> <laughs> support us at www.patreon.com forward slash deadideaspod. All right, we'll see you next week. I'm BT Newberg, and this is Dead Ideas. <laughs>